I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Domino, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the winning streak for stocks, four weeks and counting now for the S&P. And now a huge week looms for your money. We'll discuss and debate with the Investment Committee what really is at stake. Joining me for the hour today, Bryn Talkington, Joe Terranova, Steve Weiss is here as well. Let's check the markets. We do have gains across the board, so we are green across the board on this Monday. There's the S&P, 43.13. We're on a four-week win streak, as we said. We re-entered that technical bull market on Friday. That means up 20% from the prior low. Dow on pace for its best month since November. And Joe, here we go. CPI, we got a Fed meeting and uh, presumably everything else, retail. And we're going to see how this market trades once it got into this, you know, alleged new bull market. <laughs> alleged bull market. Well, certainly a technical bull market. Once again, the Nasdaq surging higher. And by the way, you could confirm both fundamentally and technically that the Nasdaq is a bull market. Uh, CPI tomorrow, without question, I believe we have priced in what we are going to see over the next two months, which is the largest single drop for inflation. Keep in mind, you're rolling off May of 2022's nine-tenths higher month-on-month, and then June's 1.2 month-on-month higher. So, Scott, you're going to be in the three to three-and-a-half range for inflation Is that good? in June. Is that good for the market? Well, it's priced in. That's all I want to no, know. No, 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 but it's priced in. It's priced in. So where do we go from there? How stubborn is the three to the three and a half level for inflation? Because let's remember something. When you see the inflation reading tomorrow and you see the drop from four nine to the low fours, don't believe that it's about fresh incoming inflation data. It is about the base effect from last year. So even if you get to that three to three and a half level, how stubborn is inflation? That's not priced into the market. Okay. Weiss, eight months ago today that the S&P 500 hit its closing low. Eight months. So we've been on this move. Um, You haven't exactly been the biggest of believers. David Costin, Goldman Sachs today, lifts his S&P 500 year uh, year end target, 4,500, as the narrow year to date rally broadens out beyond mega caps. Are you coming around? Are you coming around to a more bullish perspective? Well, my positioning has come around to some extent. Uh, You know, I mentioned whatever a week or so ago, I I bought Deer. Um, you know, Microsoft, I put on a pretty big position. Um, you know, I did sell um, some treasuries, small part of treasuries that are actually uh, coming due in, in September. Uh, look, you know, I think I said at some point last week that 4,200, if it was breached, it become, instead of resistance, can become support. And possibly that's true. I mean, it's undeniable that, uh, that people want to put money in the market, despite positioning from hedge funds being at 07 lows, meaning in terms of bad positioning, think yeah, the market's going to go they're down. They're never, as you know, so, you know they're, they're never the greatest indicator. They're not. They're not. Nothing's an indicator. And this time is different. And every time's different. So, so the old, you know, saying, it's never any different. It's always different. It's different because of the factors that get you to that different point. The ending may be the same, but look, I, I think that we have avoided for now Armageddon, at least, but we still have not seen the impact of the Fed tightening policy. 
Will we ever see it at its maximum? I don't think so as far as the market goes, as far as the economy goes, it's a different story. But you've really separated things from you know what's happening with the economy, which is slow, well, you it's know undeniable. What? Mark Zandi was tweeting about that, uh, which I thought was really interesting. He said, quote, the odds that a downturn is dead ahead are receding. And in fact, that this time actually might be different. Got a lot of excess right. savings, number one. Labor hoarding by business, number two. Low leverage, number three. So the kind of cataclysmic scenario that many painted, not right. saying that you said it was going to be a yeah. cataclysmic event, but nonetheless, this idea Fed goes 500 basis points. Mar I mean, the economy and the market can't possibly handle that. But here we are. And maybe the people who are using their forecasts are using outdated methodology. We had a once in 100 year event in the right. pandemic. We flooded the zone with more cash than we can ever remember. Right. People sat on that cash because they couldn't do anything with it. They didn't lose their jobs because nobody wanted to fire people during the pandemic. So people have jobs. The labor market's strong. People are still sitting on savings. Right. But Where, where's the end? No is disagreement there. It, it, Where? it doesn't mean that it's not going to be felt ultimately. Right. You may have delayed the impact. Now, I was never looking for a depression. I was looking for a slow economy. We've got a slow economy. I was looking for a recession. We may, may still get a recession. The question is, what's different as far as Mark goes? And what's different as far as Mark goes, as I've said repeatedly, you've got a different class of investors, a different type of investor. The people, the OGs, they're retired. They're spending their money. They're, they're off in their yachts. The new ones that are coming up are looking at 30, 40 years. And they're saying, you know what? In my lifetime, my investing lifetime, as long as I've been aware of the market, every time the market's gone down, it's gone right back up. That's not been wrong. Any stock you buy, you say, um, to your book, right? Buy high, sell I mean, high. Dalio, Anytime you a, buy it Dalio's high, you buy an OG, high. right? Yeah. He's an OG. He, he said just a few moments ago, I see a financial crisis ahead. He's worrying about the debt bomb. And, I don't think it's off the and table. All this other stuff. I do not think that's off the table. Look, commercial real estate, you're going to see a trillion. It's got to be refinanced not that far away from now. So to think that, okay, hey, we had Silicon Valley Bank, we had First Republic Bank, man, that's the bluff. Oh, wait, no other banks really blew up. Nothing's happened. No, it's because leases haven't ended. People haven't walked away from their leases. That's going to happen. The question is, can we absorb I understand, it? but Bryn, we're 20% we're off of the, the low, as we said. Steve Suttmeyer, Bank of America's technical strategist, says cyclical rallies in excess of 20% can persist. And he goes back to 29 the, these cyclical bull markets have lasted 33.6 months on average, with an average return of 114 percent. So are we on to something here? Have we have we traveled too far from the depths of where we were to turn back now? I think that this technical bull market, whether it's cyclical or secular, gets really tough for the bears who've been sitting on the sidelines. Scott, if you go back to 1946, so a, a treasure trove of data, when the S&P is 20% off its lows, the 12-month average return going forward is over 16.5%, and 85% of the time the market was positive. Now, there was two exceptions in like 1948 and 2001. But if I'm in Vegas and I have something with 85% probability, I'm probably gonna bet on that. And so I just think this market in the short term, because I think what Joe said is really important about inflation will have a three handle by August. 
That is very bullish. The Fed tomorrow, as Roger Ferguson, Ferguson said, you know, does a hawkish pause. And so I think over the next three months, it would be really nice to see a broadening out. I don't know if that will happen because ultimately the broadening out would be in the cyclical sectors. And for that to happen, you would have to say the economy's improving. And my issue going out the next six months is that I could see at the end of the year, we have GDP at 1%. We have inflation around three. We have Fed funds at five, and we have a regional banking system that I don't think can handle five to five and a half percent, because to Steve's point, we're going to start having a wall of refinancing in 2024, which gets even bigger in 2025. And these regional banks, I know they don't matter to the S&P right now, but they are the oil in the economic engine of the U.S., and I think they are limping along here. So I feel good over the next three months, but I definitely get murkier and more more bearish or cautious as I look out at the end of the year, as I do think GDP will decline because of the regional banks. Joe, we had this conversation the other day in terms of who's in charge. Who's, who's the new sheriff in town? NASDAQ. Are the bulls, the bulls now in charge or the bears still in charge? Barons, don't fear the bull market. Why stocks are headed higher. The case for optimism as a resilient market continues to disappoint the bears. So this is David Costin's thesis versus Mike Wilson's thesis. And I think David Costin ultimately will prove to be right. I think the market right now is blaring the obvious. And the obvious is technology is where the capex is. And I don't think you have to make this any more complicated than it needs to be. We're trying to figure out whether or not the consumer is going to stay resilient or not. And where do you feel the effect of the consumer most in the cyclical trade? Where right now is positioning in the cyclical trade? Caught offside still. Just look at energy. It's down significantly today. I wish I could sell my energy holdings. I'd do it in a flash if I could. So don't make it so complicated. It is technology where the capex is going to be, and you don't have to delineate between whether the consumer is decelerating or whether a consumer is resilient or not. The consumer is resilient. You just have to look in the right place because it's a tale of two markets, which we're going to get into a little bit later. Um, there is Mike Wilson, right? And um, I mean, he's been the bear. He's been the bear to, to speak of. He says the bear is still alive based on our boom bust framework. He's refusing to get off of this idea that he has that earnings are going to still deteriorate. The bear market is not over. Um, you know, what do, you, what do we think? We think it's a tale of two markets, like it's a tale of two consumers, the haves and the have-nots, because consumer, not all consumers are resilient, and we're seeing that in some of the numbers that came out. Same thing with the market. Not every stock is rebounded. Not every stock is great fundamentals. As a matter of fact, most stocks are barely off their lows and some continue to make new lows. Yeah, but at some point, don't you got to move off this and, and you say it's kind of tired at this point? Yes. Why? Why is it tired? The facts are the facts. The average S&P stock. Facts are the facts. I the mean, the, the S&P 500 is at 43.14. The average S&P stock, Scott, is up 3% this year. Okay, after being down significantly more last year. So is that recovery? Is that a bull market? No, what do you want to say? He's right. 
I'm saying his view has been largely right. Look, there are two things, okay? We can either say only focus on the indexes, that's all you're going to do, then we can all go home and play replays of Undercover Boss all day long. That's not what it's about. It's looking at what's underneath the market. If you just want to be an index investor, that's very appropriate for a lot of people. But professional investors like Joe and I, we've got to pick the right stocks and we've got to avoid losing money. And the right stocks have been basically away from the seven stocks, there have been others. So buy deer when it's down 30% and you can make some money. Buy others. I know, but, but that's to say too, we've that, been the, in, the problem with calls Scott, like this is they become too nuanced. Become too nuanced. Oh, if, I am if, really if right because the earnings well, aren't great. If you, if you and Weiss just told you right. all the stocks underneath the surface aren't right. doing well. It ignores you tell me what's the, more train, the train that's running. You tell for, me what's more nuanced. Seven stocks, I'll give you maybe the, 10. I can't think of the three out of 500 or the average of 500 stocks, the S&P 500. What's the nuance? 10, right? Are they the you know? 10 largest? Well, are they the they, 10 they largest? They got that way. It's self-filling prophecy. But they are going. It doesn't matter. But they're, Steve, they're, they're yeah. going to support earnings. So the, the theory about returning to, earnings you know, the October. Let me finish. October's lows. Right. Earnings are down. Correct. Right. Earnings are down. Consensus for 2023. Earnings down two and a half percent. To go back to October lows, you have to see earnings down 15 to 20 percent on the okay. year. And if these technology giants are going to deliver the type of earnings that they have, I don't see how you go down 15 to 20 percent in earnings. I'm not saying that that he's right in the ultimate ice or winter, wherever he calls it, is going to be right. What I'm saying is, is that the overall narrative of weakening stocks is actually more correct than the bullish narrative. Yeah, but the, but the whole point in, in part, Bryn, is that what was a extraordinarily slim move for this magnificent seven or a few more added to that mix has actually started to broaden out a little bit. What you would look for to try and say that, okay, this is a healthier move at this point than maybe it was at the mid stages of it. I, I think the three words that were most important that you said were a little bit. I mean, to Steve's point, the equal weight index is up 3%. Um, you have such a dispar- dispersion, so I think just a little bit. You really haven't seen, you've seen small caps move a week in one week, but that's not, that's not a rally. That's just like shorts covering. And so I do think, though, as the viewers, it's really important with these strategists. I mean, last year, Mike Wilson was the hero and Tom Lee was the zero. This year, you've had a total flip-flop. And so I think these extremes of like 4,800 to 3,600 just are not ways that one can really invest off of. And so you have to put together an asset allocation because otherwise you've just literally followed the wrong person this year if you followed Mike last year, and you've just missed this whole move. And so I think ultimately, you're going to continue to have tech move higher because that is where the sentiment is. Multiples will not change until there's an event. I will say, though, outside of NVIDIA, which which absolutely raised their guidance in the most historical manner ever, we haven't seen huge raises from the other tech companies. This has all been about multiple expansion. Well, that's and Tony so Sakinagi, what he says today. Have to have, I'm uh, sorry, that's what he says today. It's all well, multiple expansion. It's not earnings growth. And, and he's absolutely right, because if you take a look again away from NVIDIA, which you know had an unbelievable raise, but already overvalued, the companies have not deserved the multiple expansion. It's just capital that's looking to go to names that they know, names where they can be protected, names where they have fortress balance sheets and global businesses, global franchises, brands. But 
that that's just not, you can't tell me that the multiple on Microsoft, even though I own it, okay, a lot of potential AI has deserved to go up 50%. Can't tell me the multiple on Apple deserved to go up as much as it has. Of course it hasn't. It's not, it's not just Mike Wilson, by the way, who's, who's negative. And we don't mean to you know, single him out. It's just he's been the most vocal of the, right. of the negative strategists, I, I think. Jonathan Krinsky is the technician at BTIG. He says the reports of the bear's death have been greatly exaggerated. So you're not willing, Jonathan, welcome back, by the way, to suggest that this new bull market is legit. Well, yeah, I mean, I think uh, you guys have brought up a lot of good points, but as we you know, hear the choir of, of new bull markets becoming louder because the S&P is up 20% off the October bottom, what we want to do is, you know, look at a few different things. The first is, you know, have we seen 20% rallies within bear markets? And the answer is clearly yes. Um, it may be more the exception, but we saw it in 08, we saw it in 01, we saw it in 1947-48, uh, we saw it in the Dow in, in the 60s, and obviously the Nikkei, um, had many 30 to 40 percent rallies over the course of its uh, secular bear market. So that's that's the first part. The second part is we want to see, okay, if if we are in a new bull market, are we seeing the signs from breadth and credit that we historically see in new strong advances, given that you know we're eight months removed from that October low? And the answer on both of those is is no. Um, you know, when we talk about percentage of S&P making a 52-week high, given the S&P did make a 52-week high on Friday, we've yet to see more than 6 or 7% of the S&P make a 52-week high. Historically, at the eight-month mark, you've seen at least a handful of days where you have 20% of the S&P making a 52-week high. Um, and then finally, we get to the credit side of things. And if we look at credit spreads like BAA versus, uh, triple B versus Treasury spreads, um, they're actually 20 basis points wider than they were in February. Um, yes, they've, they've tightened a bit off the October lows, but um, you know, typically, again, eight months into a new advance, you're going to see credit spreads tighten significantly. We just haven't seen that. And so you know, to the points you brought up, we've seen breadth divergences, divergences we've seen credit divergences, um, and those are two pretty big, uh, important things to, uh, that, that we typically don't see at this point in a new bull market. Okay, but, but to what degree, if any, does time account for something, and at what point does it trump a lot of the other stuff that you said? If you're eight months off of the closing low, the further you get away, I presume, the less chance there is of going back. Well, again, that's you got to look back a little bit more throughout history. Um, you know, the the 2000 and 2008 bear markets, the 20% rallies were very sharp and, and quick, so we've exceeded that. But if you go back to the 40s, 50s, and the 60s, like I mentioned. Um, I mean, for instance, the, the Dow in 1966 had a two-year rally um, that exceeded 20%, did not eclipse the previous high, and then went on to make uh, a new bear market low in 1970. So, you know, we've seen this before. You just have to go back a little bit further. Um, so I do think, you know, an eight-month bear market rally seems uh, a bit unusual for most people because we haven't seen it in the modern era. But um, history tells us that it, it can happen. And by the way, you know, the 60s and the 70s was another um, stagflationary, inflationary environment. So, you know, maybe it is more analogous to, to what we're seeing right now. Well, I just go back to the idea of what Mark Zandi puts forth, as others have as well, that maybe, in fact, this time is different. If you're looking for any historical precedent to make your case on either fundamentals or technicals, you're always going to be able to build a narrative one way or the other to support your story. I think we've learned that. However, Maybe this time, in fact, is different. Maybe this time is different. The market and the economy are not going to react. The relationship 
as Mark Dow has suggested, between interest rates, the market and the economy is different than what people thought. Maybe we walk away from this period saying we were wrong. Yeah, look, you know, every period's different, um, you know, but every type of analysis is is using history as a guide, right? Um, whether it's fundamental or technical. So I think there's a lot of uh, things that are different this time around. And, you know, look, I'll go back to what, we, what happened last summer when the S&P had a retraced 50% of its bear market decline. And there was a lot of talk about how that had never happened in a bear market back to 1950. And what happened? It went on and broke new lows in, in October. So again, if we had gone back further through our history, we would, we would have found out that it did, in fact, happen um, prior to 1950. So, you know, I think time frame, uh, excuse me, time uh, looking at, you know, a wide range of historical uh, analogies is, is helpful. And I think just, you know, looking at the recent data set may not be, um, you know, the best evidence of what's going on right now. All right. I appreciate you joining us, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan Krinsky, BTIG. I mean, one thing, neither the bulls nor the bears are backing down off of their perspectives on, on where this market is going. Yeah. And, and I just wonder, you know, we look at everything through the optics of it being so binary. It's either we take out the January of 2022 highs or we break down below the October lows at 3491. There's a there's a high probability that much of the work so far year to date has been done already for the S&P and that we're not far away from where we're going to close out at the end of the year. That probably has the highest probability and that's probably the least discussed because we tend to view everything in such a binary capacity. Yeah. So and then there's Tesla, Bryn, which I wanted to come to you to. It's our call of the day. This stock is trying to go 12 days in a row up right now. It has it. You want to know where momentum is within this market? Yes, it's in the Magnificent Seven and these AI plays, but this one has been virtually unstoppable for the last 10 days plus. I can't get Bryn's audio. We'll try and work on that. But, you know, Weiss, you, you get my point here. If you yep. look at momentum is a powerful thing. 12 days in a row for Tesla. They got the new battery partnerships with GM yep. and Ford. Those were, you know, perceived by some to be game changers. And the stock has uh, reacted in kind. Yeah, I mean, it's a momentum market. And if you get a little bit of momentum, you see it move all the way. Uh, you know, we'll talk about Oracle later on. That's another case of momentum. So the fundamentals don't even have to accompany the price increase. Uh, for Tesla, they've had some bunch of good news. The battery partnership, Musk also getting somebody to run Twitter so he doesn't have to divide his time as much. Uh, you're seeing more adoption. You know, the market growing bigger bigger with, uh, with EVs. But uh, look, at some point, valuation becomes unreasonable. At the end of the day, they haven't had to advertise ever in the history until now. Now they have to because you've got so many more choices. So I'm not buying it here. I missed it. You got to buy these things when everybody hates them. I didn't because I still thought it was overvalued at that point. I think we got Bryn's audio back. Bryn, you were saying? Yeah. 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 Well, I just think everyone that that, that thought this was just a car company continues to be surprised at the massive moat they're creating. I think as it relates to charging, the biggest loser seems to be ChargePoint, right? Because that is the only business model they have. And I just think that Ford and GM saying Tesla's technology, our biggest competitor, is the best technology. I think there's going to be more to come. Tesla's building a lithium refiner in Corpus. They've got their own AI chips. They stopped using NVIDIA in 2018. 
They've got, they could, they could, batteries are going to be, probably could be sold to other companies. And so I just think this story continues to get better. And I think, you know, Elon continues to play five games of chess against all sorts of different competitors and comes out on top. And I think the stock price reflects that. Playing chess and you're playing, you're still playing shuffleboard, Weiss. Hey, man, you and your buddies. I'm, I'm not even tiddlywinks. Playing, playing tiddlywinks. Yeah, I'm playing too. That's right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hops, hopscotch. All right. Up next, thing. we're going to do our call of the day, our chart of the day. Excuse me. It's Oracle. Those shares hitting all time highs ahead of earnings in OT. We've got you set up next. We're back on the half in two minutes. There you go. Nice gain for ORCL up better than 6%. to our chart of the day now. It's Oracle hitting fresh all-time highs ahead of earnings tonight in overtime. Joe, this thing's been a monster. Uh, new 52-week high, as we said, up 89% off the 52-week low. Uh, good on Josh uh, for signaling this thing was ready for a breakout several months ago. Uh, Jim Labenthal's an owner of it, too. Neither one of them around today to join us, sadly, but they will comment on it, obviously, the next time they're on. But what, what should we look for here? So I think Josh did a good job identifying that momentum finally came into the stock. The momentum had been missing. This is a stock that in the last several years has been a complete value trap. This is a stock that has never really been a candidate for our strategy because it fails so miserably, believe it or not, mm -hmm. on the quality side. This is a company that over the last 36 months has only had 2% Revenue growth. This is a company that has extreme, like Apple. <laughs> extremely high, ex not, not to this regard, extremely high debt relative to its equity. And it's only more recently that you're seeing the free cash flow generation. So this was a classic value trap, okay? Now you've got the thesis that free cash flow generation is slowly beginning to rise. You saw a better quarter, 17% yep. sales growth, and you have the AI story. And what do you get? You get the momentum, which you like. Upgraded to outperform at Wolf. Uh, the target is 130, Weiss. Heroes yeah. get remembered. Legends never die. That's yeah, what they so say today. Kind of interesting. We know we have spoken to the company for two weeks because they're in their quiet period before earnings, right? Two weeks before the quarter ends. So why upgrade? Well, you upgrade because in this market, if a stock does better than what earnings are forecast to be, what guidance is, it's up 20%. 25%. So you make the decision, do I want to miss that if they put up another good quarter, or do I want to come in and sort of roll the dice, recommend in front of the quarter, and if it trades down, you know what? It's a market that's looking for these kind of stocks, so over time will be okay. That's the reason for the upgrade. There's, it's just playing a little bit of chess. It's tactical. Look, Oracle's always been a fine company. It's been a slow grower. It's been old technology. Maybe this is their time. AI is going to do a lot for companies that can afford to spend on, that can afford the R&D and that already have that embedded customer base mm -hmm. where they can expand their product offerings. Ren, it's kind of tough when you got a stock that's up near 10% in a week into a number. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like the PE is around, the Ford PE is only around 25. And so if people are looking to say, hey, where's a name? It's up 45% year to date. Where's a name that's not expensive? If to Joe's point, they can grow, they actually have a growth trajectory. I don't think they're going to pull an NVIDIA. By the way, I don't think even remotely you're going to see that type of number. But I think as people are chasing these different names, if they come in stronger, stronger after the print, I think the name could easily pop even higher. All right, let's get the headlines now with Contessa Brewer. Hi, Contessa. 
There, Scott, good to see you. Here's our CNBC News update now. A source familiar with the matter tells NBC News, Fox News sent a cease and desist letter to former anchor Tucker Carlson. That letter alleges that Carlson breached his contract by starting a show on Twitter. Carlson parted ways with Fox News in late April, days after the network agreed to pay almost $800 million to Dominion Voting Systems to avert a high-stakes defamation trial. The chief of the United Nations says he thinks Russia will back out of the Black Sea grain deal in July. That could mean real problems for exports. Over the weekend, Moscow expressed dissatisfaction with the deal, which allows for the safe wartime export of grain from Ukraine's blockaded ports. The current agreement expires July 18th. And the most active volcano in the Philippines is spewing lava today. It's prompted the evacuation of more than 13,000 people who live within a four-mile radius. Authorities raised the alert level for the volcano Thursday. They warned there could be hazardous eruptions within days or weeks. Dangerous, but pretty amazing to look at, Scott. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Contessa, thank you so much. Sure. That's Contessa Brewer. All right, here's our, uh, well, that's not it, actually. What are we doing here? What do you guys want to do? Okay. Uh, up next, the great thaw, the IPO market showing new signs of life, how you can play it. We'll do that next. And welcome back to Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani with today's ETF Edge. Green shoots for the IPO market. The great IPO drought has gone on for 18 months, but some are hopeful that may be ending. Fast casual restaurant Kava is scheduled to go public at the New York Stock Exchange this Thursday and this morning raised the price of that proposed IPO. There is a long list of companies that have been waiting to go public for over a year. IPO watchers are hopeful that with the market rising, the great IPO drought may be ending. Let's talk with Matt Kennedy. He's the senior IPO market strategist for Renaissance Capital, which runs the Renaissance Capital IPO ETF. Matt, good to see you. Uh, it's often said the most important precursor for a return of IPOs is a strong stock market. S&P's near a 52-week high. Is this the moment we've been waiting for? Is this what it takes, finally, to get the IPO market back on track? I think so, Bob. Uh, great to be here. We're now in the second year of that severe IPO drought. Proceeds are about one-third of a normal year. However, you know, we do see a light at the end of the tunnel. All the pieces are in place for an IPO pickup. And I think the most important piece that we look up at is returns. Uh, the Renaissance IPO index, which is tracked by our ETF, is up more than 25% year to date. That's double the S&P 500. Yeah. So, you know, our performance is the fuel that powers the IPO issuance engine. Yeah, you know, a strong market not only lifts stock prices, it lifts the potential valuations of IPO candidates. That's exactly what we saw today with Kava. The mm -hmm. proposed nice. price was 17 to 19, and now it's 19 to 20. Is that also going to get the attention of other IPO candidates? Is that also going to help? I think so, yeah. I mean, that's basically it. That's the two sides of the equation. Investors, on the one hand, they need to make money on IPOs, and we are seeing that with the index. And then on the other hand, the issuers uh, need to see that they, can, that they can get a good valuation. And I think, as you mentioned, Kava uh, shows that they can. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Renaissance Capital running the IPO ETF. It was a disastrous 2020, let's face this. I'm getting around uh, it, it. As you mentioned, it's beating the S&P up 25% versus 12% this year for the S&P. But the major mm -hmm. holdings are all the holdovers, the old tech holdovers. Snowflake, for example, uh, Airbnb, uh, Palantir, DoorDash, all of that's benefiting from the tech revival. Can we get a, right. a broader rally in IPOs other than just, you know, a, a few old 
uh, tech IPOs? Yeah, I mean, uh, our index holds the largest and most liquid names over the last three years. So that includes some of those uh, large tech IPOs from years ago, which, you know, they are benefiting from the current AI revolution. They're, they're clear beneficiaries, Snowflake, Palantir. Uh, now, will we see uh, a broad-based pickup uh, going forward? I mean, we, we are hopeful. Uh, we've looked at studies, and studies have shown that it is now during these times, these slow times, that companies need to go public at attractive valuations with strong fundamentals. Right. And I think that's what we're most excited about. Yeah, you know, there's, there is a long list of companies to go public. Uh, Fogo de Chao, another restaurant company, mm -hmm. uh, Reddit, Instacart. There's the big semiconductor giant Arm. That could be the biggest one of the year. But we've got mm -hmm. Panera Bread, Stripe, Impossible Foods, Fanatics, StubHope. There's many others that are potential hopefuls that are out there. There's the potential list. Anybody who might be likely next on, on this list? Well, you know, if Kava does well, and they did raise the range, uh, we would expect to see more uh, restaurant IPOs. So you mentioned the Brazilian Steakhouse, uh, Fogo Hospitality. There's a uh, Korean barbecue restaurant called Jen, uh, Panera Bread. Beyond that, you know, we, we do see some industry-specific tailwinds in biotech and energy and insurance. Uh, but yes, ARM should be the headline IPO of 2023, raising up to $10 billion. It's It's going to be a whopper. Okay, we're going to have a lot more on the IPO market coming up at 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time. That's ETF Edge. Plus, we'll talk about the state of the markets and this curious lack of inflows into ETFs this year. What's up with that? Todd Sohn, head of ETF and technical strategy at Stratega Securities. Kyla Scanlon, founder of financial education company Bread, will be joining us. That's etfedge.cnbc.com. Scotty, back to you. All right, Bob. Thank you very much, Bob Pisani. Up next, a tale of two discretionary sectors. We'll tell you what's driving the action in cruise stocks today and why the rest of that space isn't in the same boat. Halftime's back right after this. Welcome back. We have a news alert on Microsoft. Our Steve Kovac is uh, right there with these headlines. Maybe not all that surprising, but uh, still, when a headline this, like this crosses, Steve, we need to get some context on it. Yeah, Scott. So here's what's going on. Uh, according to a source familiar, the FTC is going to file an injunction attempting to block Microsoft's $69 billion acquisition of Activision. Now, we know the FTC has already sued over this case, but that first hearing wasn't expected till later this summer. This is going to kind of accelerate the case. And I'm told uh, Microsoft is actually welcoming this decision because it's going to get it in front of a judge much faster. We're, uh, we're understanding right now that it's going to be filed in a court in Northern California. We're still waiting for the exact injunction to come in and see kind of the rationale behind it. Uh, but look, this is uh, still in litigation here in the U.S. The U.K has already blocked a deal, the Competition's Markets Authority over there. And in fact, today was the first hearing in Microsoft's appeal against that decision. And the other major regulatory agency, the European Commission, has already approved the deal. So it's these other two that are still out there, Scott, that need to uh, work through before uh, the deal can go through. Yes, yeah, Steve, which is why, you know, I, I suggested it can't be viewed as as a major surprise, obviously, no, not at all. Given, um, given this administration's uh, tenor and tone towards towards deal making. So, Steve, you know, when, when you think about this, so they're appealing in, in the UK. They obviously, as Steve said, they welcome this so they can appeal the process here and have a formal process underway. Uh, this make you think differently in any way about Microsoft? 
No, as a matter of fact, I was not not Microsoft at all. Because you don't own Activision. No, I don't own Act. I did own Activision. I traded for a little bit, and I just said, you know what, my downside while well, this is working out, my downside's minimal, and my upside's 96 bucks, which I think is the deal price. But here's what I'd say: Activision put up a good quarter, the last quarter. So you could argue the stock's not particularly overvalued here. As a matter of fact, maybe undervalued at this level. So that's why the stock's flat. So if Microsoft gets it, great. They got plenty of cash. If they don't, it just doesn't matter in my thesis on Microsoft. Joe? That's great analysis. And it, it really, at the end of April, when we heard from the UK, that's when we built in the fact that this deal was not going to happen. This is not a surprise hearing this news today. I agree it's favorable because it speeds up the, the appeal process. But this stock is fairly valued, and there has been strength and resiliency in the earnings most recently ported, so, or reported. Rather. So at $80, uh, I think we're okay. Is, uh, are you, is David good? All right, good. Uh, the crackle that we heard of the, the mic was uh, you getting, getting uh, yeah. set up, which yeah. I'm glad you're here. Sure. Um, you can't be surprised about this. Well, no and yes and no. Um, there's been some weird chatter in the market of late, which was hard to make sense of, which is the following, that Microsoft was prepared to potentially close their deal in front of or without the FTC having obviously even gone to court to, uh, it was an administrative law judge originally, mm. and or obviously over the objections of the CMA. That seemed unlikely, but you know, I was hearing that people who perhaps had heard it from uh, from Activision CEO that there was this possibility somehow they won't have to extend the merger agreement because they would have to to fight the FTC and the CMA and the appeals process, and therefore this idea somehow, Scott, that they would close around, so to speak, the FTC. Unlikely. My understanding is that was not the, ever the plan. Mm -hmm. But if you were the FTC and you were hearing this, you would want to get a temporary restraining order, and you do that by going to federal court. Um, the process right now was to actually go in front of an administrative law judge. So it changes it, as I think Steve Kovac made clear earlier. Mm -hmm. um, you go and you get a TRO, you prevent them from closing the deal. Is it beneficial to Microsoft? It might end up being beneficial, but there are still a lot of hurdles, as Joe just indicated, for this deal to actually come to any sort of closure, uh, namely beating the FTC, now in federal court conceivably, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to an administrative law judge who, uh, it, I don't even want to get into it. Because <laughs> but that says the, everything, uh, though, yeah. and then how you've, complicated it's this so com be. And then you've got to ultimately prevail as well in the appeals process that they are currently engaged in in front of the CMA, the UK regulator, where there has been a lot of political pressure brought on the CMA of late. Uh, by the prime minister and others saying it's being too anti-business, but still remains very much unclear whether that appeals process will result in Microsoft winning uh, on appeal. So you've got two things out there. You've also got potentially most likely to have to extend the merger agreement, which is going to cost Microsoft more money, by the way, because Activision is in a better place than it was when they bought it so long ago or when mm -hmm. they announced the deal. Mm -hmm. All of which is to say a lot of complexity around it. This may help in some way simplify it. Now you go to federal court, you got one case. If you win it, it's unlikely the FTC is going to appeal you. And of course, Microsoft feels very strongly that, that it is in the right and will win against the FTC one way or the other. Still can't tell you about the CMA appeals process. These are all, as you know better than, than everybody, chess matches. Yeah. And um, do you have any idea of sort of what 
going through Bobby Kotick. You mentioned the Activision, Activision uh, CEO, Bobby yeah. Kotick, obviously. Yeah. What's his thought process at this particular point? What what he thinks, if he ever really thought this thing was going to get to the finish line you anyway? Know, I, I think he did. Um, uh, Bobby has not been returning my calls, um, sadly. But uh, <laughs> Come on, Bobby. <laughs> but, you know, that can always change. Um, I mean, we've known each other a really long time, Bobby. <laughs> Come on, Bobby. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what I have been hearing, and again, this is more in the realm of speculation, is that he is not looking somehow to hope that this deal fails and take control of his company again. In fact, that he is ready to say, this is the end of the chapter. This company is going to be in great hands with Microsoft, uh, and he's ready to sort of move on. So that at least is something I've been hearing of late. Uh, but again, you're most likely, because the, 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 the merger agreement expires in the middle of July. So let's call it a little more than a month from now, Scott. And Microsoft's going to have to pay them more money to extend it. Uh, and clearly we'll have to in order to both meet the FTC in court, here in federal court now, potentially in California, as we hear as a possibility, and, of course, content, uh, complete that appeals process with the CMA, both of which remain very much undecided. People, you know, not, not every viewer we have follows M&A as closely no. as, as, as we do, obviously. Can you just speak to how this administration is being viewed in the realm of trying to make deals? And maybe one of the toughest hurdles that they've put up to get over it in some time. Certainly, I bet as you've been as long as you've been covering M&A, that this has to be one of uh, the toughest FTCs, if not Justice Departments, to get over that that M&A hurdle. No doubt, Scott. Uh, both the DOJ uh, and the FTC under Lena Khan have made it much more difficult to even contemplate deals, certainly deals of size. And in part, I think what they have done is uh, intentionally tried to chill the market overall for M&A, even though they may not be successful in prevailing in court. If this were to go to court, I think the odds are in Microsoft's favor to be able to prove its case against the FTC. That at least is according to virtually all the legal experts that I've been able to talk to over time. Uh, and in the same way that Amgen feels very strongly, it will prevail should it come to it uh, for its uh, acquisition of Horizon, which also is being opposed by the FTC. So. Yes. Uh, what it has done is chilled the market for M&A. It is literally the first thing you hear from every practitioner as to why companies are thinking twice. Even if they think they can prevail, the time it would take, the difficulty, the, the distraction, the expense all adds up to fewer deals, at least right now, until and unless the FTC gets soundly beaten in court, which could change people's approach. Okay. You know where to find them, Bobby. You know where to find I'm here. <laughs> David, thank you for running down here. Of course. Anytime. Uh, we, I really had to hear from you, uh, given this uh, news. That's David Faber. All right, we're right back. Big day for cruise line stocks. They're surging today. Carnival, Norwegian, Royal Caribbean, all hitting new 52-week highs. Our Dom Chu right here at Post 9 with a look at why travel stocks are on the move. But it is really a tale of two discretionary sectors. Absolutely. So the, the cruise stocks is where we jump off, because if you take a look at the action today, it is because of a couple of analyst upgrades, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, all upgrading Carnival to the equivalent of a buy rating. You have a lot more of those moves upping price targets for Norwegian and Royal Caribbean in terms of competitors. The basis is fairly simple. Cruise trends remain good, booking trends remain solid, and there is better balance sheet flexibility and improvement trends going on there. What becomes curious, and to Scott's point is, those travel and leisure names and the outperformance that we've seen versus traditional retail. 
in this environment, in this economy, everybody's competing for consumer dollars. If you put up those cruise line operators versus, say, a Target or a Walmart and look at the year-to-date divergence in some of those stocks, you can see where people are deciding to spend their money. And by the way, it's not just on the basic side of things for a Target and Walmart in terms of big box. If you put up, say, a booking or an Expedia on the travel booking side of things versus luxury names like RH, Restoration Hardware, or even Ralph Lauren, the outperformance is market. So, Scott, Scott, Joe, it goes without saying that this is a tougher economy for spending, but people are certainly spending more on travel and leisure, and investors are appreciating that particular thesis. That's the reason why it's such an important trade. Why should you go Dick Sporting Goods? That's pretty much it. No travel-related stuff at all. Now, if you take a look at the airlines, despite every flight being booked and, you know, ticket fares going up, they've really not done much of anything. No, but the cruises, you know, look at these the names. Cruises I mean, Royal have, Caribbean's the cruises up 90%. Have. Yeah, and, and I'd be careful with cruises. You know they're coming back and raising equity to pay off their balance sheet. Balance sheets are ridiculous. They had to do so much borrowing to spend them, you know, to keep themselves from going under, so to speak, not underwater, completely belly up uh, during the pandemic because nobody took cruise, obviously. So I'm not chasing these. I don't I don't think they're worth it. All right. I got to I got to break uh, away from this and go back to Steve Kovac because I'm learning we have a statement from Microsoft. Yeah, now, we Steve, sh- don't we? Yeah, we sure do. Uh, Scott, this is from uh, President uh, Brad Smith of Microsoft uh, on that FTC injunction I told you about just a few minutes ago. Uh, he says, quote, we welcome the opportunity to present our case in federal court. We believe accelerating the legal process in the U.S. will ultimately bring more choice and competition to the market. Now, this is just what I told you earlier. They really, uh, Microsoft really wants this to get to federal court as is Activision because they believe not only does it accelerate before that end date next month, but also they think they have such a strong case that a federal judge will approve the deal and put an end to this litigation, Scott. All right. So we'll uh, continue to follow this. Uh, Steve, thank you for the latest there. Steve Kovac. Dom, thank you. We got to bounce. We're going to uh, we'll do final trades after this quick break. Three o'clock Eastern time today. We're going to see where this market uh, ends up closing the day. We're uh, good for about 18 points right now. We've got a great lineup for you, too. I'll see you in just a couple hours uh, time. Let's do let's do some final trades. Brand, what do you have for us? Abvi. It has not been a good stock this year. It's down 15%. I think it's bottomed around the one, the high 130s. The Humira Biosimilars, I believe, is priced in. So I think this is a good entry point, 4.5% yield, high free cash flow yield. Okay. Steve Weiss, what do you got? Dear, continue momentum trade. I mean, this is momentum. So there will be some volatility if, you know, depending upon what the numbers are and what the Fed says. But I still think it goes back over 400 near term. Joey? I'll mention Broadcom again. It's probably my favorite position right now, and the potential is there for the uh, VMware deal to close $61 billion deal. You need the EU to approve that. So trading out to a reasonable valuation chip play that is going to be a winner in AI, Broadcom's the name. You know, I'm looking at the the market, the internals here of um, what sectors from the S&P are doing the best. You know, we're at the highs of the day on the Dow. So we're 33,978, approaching a 34,000 round number, and the S&P still holding above 4,300 at 4,317. You know, Weiss, the, the further this market starts to advance, the harder it's going to be uh, for the bears to, to stand their, their ground, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, no, hey, that's for sure. Uh, you know, I look at a stock like Adobe, which, which you know, I owned in the past, uh, actually bought a little bit of it last week, 
and uh, not enough to matter one way or the other. But I'm looking, it's up another 4% today after that wild move last week. So yeah, so it, it gets more difficult uh, if you're on the sidelines and you have to account for performance, relative performance, uh, to say, hey, here's why I'm still doing. But ultimately, you know, I don't think the world's changed all that much. It's only the, the market momentum. Big contribution from Intel today, up 5% for the Dow Jones being. People look for the next Oracle, the next Adobe, the next one, and they think can be Intel. We'll okay, so we'll see what happens over the final uh, few hours here, and I'll see you on Closing Bell in a couple of the exchanges now. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer.